You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so I believe that one of the most compelling ways to convey the truth of who Jesus is, especially in our post-Christian, very skeptical world like we live in today, is to say this. Tell me about the Jesus that you want nothing to do with. Tell me about the Jesus that you find it hard to believe in. Tell me about the Jesus that you cannot trust because chances are I do not believe that Jesus either. If you're going to reject Christianity, at least let it be true Christianity, right? But the challenge for us, the church, is actually very similar today. If you're going to embrace Christianity, then you're going to have to be sure that you are embracing Christianity as Jesus intended it, true Christianity. There's a scene from one of my favorite childhood movies that I talk way too much about, The Goonies. I just saw it again at Target, like... Uh, The Goonies is about a group of kids that are on uh, the search for lost treasure to raise the funds to stop their neighborhood from being demolished. And their journey begins in this old abandoned restaurant where this crime family has set up shop. And down in the basement, they discover a money printing machine. And on it, sheets and sheets of $50 bills. And they are losing their minds. They don't even find the hidden treasure They don't need to. They found all of these $50 bills and they're so excited and they're celebrating it. And and one of the older brothers walks up. He says, quiet, quiet. And he takes it in his hand and he says, these are fake. They're bogus. And they are all just so disappointed. The question for us today is what are you embracing or what are you rejecting today? Is it real? Is it authentic or is it counterfeit? I read a story of a man who wanted to learn how to detect counterfeit money. Strange hobby, but everyone's got their own. 
So he visits this large bank, and they're actually willing to show them their techniques and how to determine counterfeit money. And the woman that is training him in these techniques stresses the point that this is not about studying counterfeit money in order to detect it. Being able to identify counterfeit currency is all about studying the real thing, real money. You've got to know the real thing. And so she explained this process of determining a genuine bill is to touch it, tilt it, look at it, look through it, become so acquainted with what is real that you will not be able to fall for the fake. This, I believe, is what the Apostle Paul is urging the Colossians church to do throughout this short letter that we have. To grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ and to stand firm in the Christian faith. Why? Because just like us today, 2,000 years later, there were all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is and what Christianity was supposed to be that were simply not true. Then it was forms of Gnosticism, triumphalism, moralism, which we see the Apostle Paul combating in the book of Galatians, and on and on and on. These various teachings that include, and here's where it gets tricky, it included Jesus explicitly. And at first, they looked very real. But they were counterfeits that actually undermined the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we're told in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, I say this, I'm telling you these things in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Not crazy, off-the-wall, bogus arguments. Very easy to fall for arguments. Plausible, credible at first. Now, one of the challenges that we have when we are comparing some of our modern uh, ideas of Christianity with how the Bible describes Christianity is that sometimes they don't even look like the same thing. Sometimes it's not like you know, a, a fake 20 that would pass at a gas station, comparing that with a real $20 bill, sometimes it is so wildly different that it's actually disorienting. That it's actually like, what? A commentator said about this passage, that if all these ideas that we're reading here sound strange to our modern ears, it may not be because of the distance between Paul and ourselves in time and culture, It may be because the church has forgotten that we are the body of the crucified Messiah. Maybe we have forgotten today that we are the body of the crucified Messiah. And so the question is, what does it mean for us, if this is true, what does it mean for us, the church, to be the body of the crucified Messiah? Well, there are three themes in this passage that are absolutely vital for us to understand so that we today are living into what is real and so that we're not falling for the counterfeit. Three themes that we see here, ministry, mystery, and maturity. Let's look first at mystery. Now, I hesitate to use this word ministry because the way that we use the word today often is referring to a specific role within church leadership, a pastor, a missionary, someone who has given their entire life and vocation to being in the ministry. It's their job. But Paul doesn't use a specific term here like he does elsewhere, like apostle. That's an office. That is a role within the church. Instead, he uses a general term here, minister, which means servant. 
servant. And in that sense, this ought to apply to any one of us as believers. I'm in the ministry, you're in the ministry. In fact, the Apostle Paul elsewhere in Ephesians chapter four says this, and he, speaking of Jesus, gave the apostles, that's the role, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, so those are offices and roles, in order to equip the saints, who are the saints, by the way, we talked about this last week, Michelle and the rest of all believers, right? All believers, why? For the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Every member ministry. Ministry is not reserved for a select group of people. Ministry is what all Christians are equipped to participate in. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and said, hey, I think you should talk to so-and-so. I think they're really going through it right now. Or like, hey, you didn't hear it from me, but like so-and-so, they've got this like thing in their life. I think that you should talk to them about it. And every time, without fail, I always ask, have you talked to them? Have you talked to them? Because like what would stop you in this moment from ministering? How are you thwarted or how are you stopped right now from fulfilling your ministry? Now, what Paul mentions here is that one of the genuine marks of ministry, assuming that we're all part of ministry here, is suffering. Look with me again in verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Already disorienting here. Already like, what, what? Because we often think that to become a Christian means that we are entitled to slowly but surely over time move further and further away from suffering. Maybe we wouldn't articulate it, but I think it's a deep down gut sense. I became a Christian to be happy and blessed, to like leave pain and suffering behind. And so with that deep down gut reaction, we celebrate how good God is. Isn't God good? Isn't he able when he does all the things that we want him to do? When he fulfills all of our prayer requests. And then we begin to question, God, is God good? Has God forsaken me? Where is God when things go bad? When we don't get what we wanted. But remember, the church is the body of the crucified Messiah. To be identified with Jesus is to necessarily identify with his sufferings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put a very fine point on it when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and join me and die with me. Now, this is not talking about making up for Jesus himself lacking in affliction. I think that this needs to be explained here. When Jesus was on the cross, breathing his last breath, he cried out, it is finished, and we believe it. No amount of human suffering will ever be able to achieve what Jesus has fulfilled and completed for us. There is nothing that we need to add to the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In fact, the apostle Peter would tell us elsewhere, for Christ also suffered once, or once and for all, for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus has fulfilled it. Salvation is found in him and him alone. Amen? Amen. 
So what is Paul talking about here? Lacking affliction, what does that mean? Well, what Paul is referring to here is what's lacking in the church. Jesus is sufficient. We are lacking. Can I get an amen? Okay, so Jesus has invited us into the fellowship of his sufferings. That doesn't mean we always respond appropriately. And this is not just suffering in general. Everyone suffers, by the way. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. We all suffer. We all experience pain and cancer and death and war and strife and all sorts of things that hurt our human experience. What he's referring to is being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is a very unique kind of suffering. A kind of affliction that comes to those who take serious the call to bring the gospel to those who have not heard it yet. So whether it's a physical toll, whether it's a relational loss, whether it's emotional and spiritual struggle, whether it's financial loss, it's essentially saying, I am willing to experience and suffer loss so that others may gain Christ. And it's a worthwhile sacrifice. And the suffering Paul is showing us here is not a reason to doubt. It's not a reason to despair. It's not a reason to say, oh, it's all gone wrong. I'm failing. It is a reason to rejoice because it's a sign you're in the right fight. You're in the right fight. Paul also describes this ministry as stewardship. Look at me again in verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the what? Stewardship from God that was given to me for you. That's really important. Given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So this word stewardship is such a helpful way for us to understand how we are to relate to the things that we have in our lives and specifically what we've been given from God. We tend to think of things in our lives as ours, right? Our time, our money, our relationship, our children, our bodies, our faith, our personal relationship with God. But in the ancient world, this word steward or this title steward was someone that was assigned oversight or management of someone else's stuff. Their estate, their wealth, their possession, their fill in the blank. And so what this means is that a steward, yes, significant, but a steward is not an owner. If you are a steward, you're not an owner. Stewards are under obligation to honor the one who is entrusted, whatever it is, into their care. I represent the one who owns all of this. And so Paul says, I am a steward specifically. This applies to everything in our lives, by the way. But Paul's talking about the word, the gospel. The gospel, he says, that God gave to him to give to who? Okay, us. Very good. So Paul says, whatever I have related to the gospel wasn't for me. It's for you. So when it comes to faith, when it comes to our spiritual gifts and our talents, when it comes to what God is doing in our lives, what God is showing us in his word, whatever God is revealing to us, it is never intended just for us. John Calvin put it this way, all the gifts which we possess have been bestowed by God and entrusted to us on the condition that they be distributed to our neighbor's benefit. What you have is not for you. 
What you have is for them. Paul also describes ministry as a struggle. Look at me again in verses 29 through chapter 2, verse 1. For this I toil, what? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a what? Struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who I have not seen or have not seen me face to face. I know it is really easy to think that when things get difficult that something's gone wrong. Gosh, this is challenging right now. Where did I get off? What happened? Wait, where did we go wrong? This is a struggle. What am I doing wrong? But Paul shows us the opposite is true. Catch this. Struggle is often a sign that you are moving in the right direction. Think about the negative ways that we talk about struggle in our faith. There, I've done it again. In the faith. Man, I'm really struggling right now. Good. Maybe you need someone to tell you, hey, I'm encouraged by that struggle. I'm glad you're struggling because it means that you're not spiritually dead. I'm gonna be honest. I'm concerned for the person who doesn't struggle. I'm gonna be even more honest. I don't trust the person who never struggles. I'm suspicious of you. What do you got going on, man? It means that you have not given up. Struggle means that you still have fight left in you. Struggle is the evidence that the spirit of God is at work within you doing a beautiful but ugly work of coming against and crucifying the desires of the flesh. Is that supposed to be easy? Is that supposed to be like this beautiful, peaceful, tranquil process? It is a battle. But a battle we know that we're gonna win. And it means that you are living for something bigger than your own comfort and happiness. Next time you're struggling, next time you're like, man, I'm really going through it, take a moment and say, thank God that God is at work within my life and that he has not allowed me to settle for comfort and ease. I'm on the upward call to something higher. Don't resist struggle. Don't resent struggle. Here's what you should resist and resent, ease, apathy, And I love the tension here. Paul says, I toil, struggling with all his energy. Isn't that an amazing tension? I struggle his energy. So there is necessary human effort. Dallas Willard once said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. There is still necessary effort, but it's not in our own strength. The effort is never in our own strength, but in his What are we doing when we struggle in the spirit? We're we're giving it all that he's got. Don't give it all you got. You're going to fail. Give it all he's got. Amen? All right, we got to move on. Secondly, mystery. You still with me? I'm trying here. I'm trying. It is vital to understand, secondly, the mystery. Look at me again in verses 25 through 26, jumping back up. To make the word of God fully known, the what? The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Who are, who are the saints? Okay, and Michelle, we're going to keep pressing that one. Um, I think about a number of crime movies and like crime series that have like this investigation board. You know the board? 
and they've got the pictures and the clues. And as they're investigating things, they're putting up more pictures and articles and newspaper clippings. And I don't know if people actually do this, but in all the movies, they've got the threads connecting the clues and what on and whatnot. And as time passes and the evidence is compiled, the threads all begin to point to a specific place and a specific event and specifically a, a, a person of interest. And then they take the big pen and they like circle that person. What Paul is saying here is that in the unfolding drama of God, what was previously hidden for ages, in other words, it wasn't obvious. It was hidden. We just had clues. But now, it has been revealed in Jesus. And all of the threads of salvation, all of the threads of hope, all of the threads of glory, all of the threads of renewal and life point back to Jesus. Jesus is the unveiling of who God is. Jesus is the unveiling of what God has been doing all throughout history. Anything that we would ever want to know about God, anything that we'd ever want to know about how to relate to God is found in Jesus. And at the heart of this mystery that is revealed in Jesus was a plan, a glorious plan, in fact, to expand the reach of God's grace and mercy to the furthest points of the world. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, or when you hear that word, just think anyone who's not a Jew. So here's the Jewish cultural religion and Gentiles are everyone outside of that, us included. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, just like today in our time, there were those who believed wrongly that access to God was exclusively for a certain group of people. Okay, this is our God. This is our thing here. It had to do with like cultural stuff, religious, political, racial. We'll talk a little bit about circumcision next week and how that was a cultural marker. Like we are the in people, you are the out people, we are the Yahweh people, you are whoever else people. And so one application, there's a lot that can be said about this, but one application that we can gather from the, this point is this. That God is going to remain hidden. God is going to remain veiled and obscure and out of reach and intensely mind-boggling and puzzling to you so long as you see him in this narrow way. So long as you see God is ours, not theirs. And God will remain veiled and hidden if that is our mindset. However, God will forever be known and forever glorified through a Jesus who goes to the least likely places to bring healing grace and transformation. Let me put a fine point on it here. We will see God most clearly when we see the hope of Jesus being extended most broadly. That's when God is most magnified in our presence when we see Jesus going to the furthest reaches. This is the glory of the mystery. This is where the glory is found. This is the hope of the glory, he says, Christ in you. Now, we make this mistake of personalizing this. We read this and we think, I have hope because Jesus resides in me, right? And while that statement is true, 
I do have hope. You have hope because Jesus is in you. That's not what Paul's saying here. The hope of glory, a bright future exists because Jesus has chosen to make his move towards religious and cultural outsiders. In you means in the Colossians church, which is not in Jerusalem, which was not a part of the commonwealth of Israel, which was outside of the religious inside group. And Paul's saying, Christ is in you too. In your obscure little third-ranked city in the empire. Christ among outsiders. That's where his glory is brightest. The good news of God's love and grace taking root in a community previously thought to be out of God's reach. Let's look finally at maturity. Christian faith, without maturing faith, is a counterfeit Christianity. In his book, uh, The Road Less Traveled, M. Scott Peck, he talks about the process of growth that is natural for all people. We're once infants, from infancy we go to childhood, and from childhood we go to adolescence, and this is the hard bridge sometimes, from adolescence into adulthood. And the argument that he makes is that spiritual growth is going to follow a very similar pattern. Infancy, childhood, adolescence, adulthood. And if you think about it, the Bible sort of affirms this idea. The Bible talks about infants longing for spiritual milk so they can grow. What are infants? Infants are not contributors. Infants are infants. Infants are not leaders. Infants are necessarily needy. Babies are carried, babies are fed. And here's the thing, every church should have spiritual infants. This is not something to resent. We are having an actual physical baby boom right now in the church. This should be happening spiritually as well. Infants in the church means that new birth is happening. People are coming to faith, amen? Then there's childhood, learning how to grow. But it's still very immature, right? Some responsibilities come but it's still like about being entertained and fighting off boredom. They still see themselves as like the center of the universe, everything is about them sort of thing. And the expectation is that someone will develop in each stage necessarily, but then move forward. And so it is with Christian growth. There there are necessary stages where infants need milk. The Bible says this. You, you can't be chomping on a big piece of steak. You need milk. That's what you need. And that's not condescending. Babies need milk. And children need constant attention. And adolescents need constant affirmation and challenging and redirection. God intends for us to mature both personally and communally to grow from one stage to the next. And while it may seem like a very lofty goal, while it's very easy to get stuck In one stage, I know this, it is actually a realistic goal for us. Now that we have the spirit of God alive and powerfully working within us, this is what he is struggling within us to do, to make us grow. I think about clothes shopping for for little kids. Clothes shopping for little kids 101, if your kid is in between sizes, you go for the bigger size. Why? Because they're going to grow into it. Or if a kid wants expensive shoes, you get the bigger size. Why? It's going to last longer. They're going to grow into it. It's like an assumed thing. 
And it's that sort of expectation and confidence that the Apostle Paul has for the church that we too are going to grow. In fact, he says this is the goal of his entire ministry. It's what he lives for. It's why he's in prison. It's what he's willing to suffer for. All of the struggle that he's experienced is for the sake of you and I and all the rest of Christians to mature. Look with me in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That we may grow into who we already are in Jesus. Growing in our knowledge and wisdom of God. Growing in our courage, growing in our obedience, growing in our unity and love for one another, growing in our assurance of who Jesus is. And what M. Scott Peck, back on Peck, he says that a lot of our dysfunction that we experience in our lives, and I would venture to say a lot of the dysfunction that we experience in our church as well, is based on clinging to outdated approaches from prior stages of life. Anyone who's taken... uh, you know, psychology class knows this word. He calls it transference. And he describes it as a set of ways of perceiving and responding to the world which are developed in childhood, which are usually entirely appropriate for the childhood environment, but then are inappropriately transferred to the adult experience. They worked then. You were a kid. You should do that. They don't work now. They don't work anymore. Let's put some sanctified language on this. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. And I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. Because I was a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What is maturing? It's giving up childish ways. So when Christians say things like, I don't like this church anymore. I'm not feeling fed. Maybe this is revealing an infant-like impulse. Maybe this is transferring an outdated behavior to a new adult-like environment. Infants are spoon-fed. Here comes the rocket. Open. Adults feast on the word. You catch my drift? Or no one wants to be my friend. I can't connect here. No one reached out. I was gone three weeks and no one ever reached out to me. That's fair. We should be reaching out to each other, but maybe this is transferring an adolescence like insecurity, a teenage angst that ought to be growing up where where we shouldn't expect everyone to come to us. Maybe this should be the place where we are called to go to others. Maybe this shouldn't be the place where we just simply expect to be discipled. Maybe this should be a church where we are expected to disciple other people. Maybe that's God's vision for us growing and maturing. I gotta end. Oh gosh, I'm out of time already. I'll end with a story. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene where it's been a while since young Lucy and her companions have seen Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus. And she encounters him, and she's extremely surprised. And it goes like this. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, responded Lucy. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. 
So why is growth in Christ important? And here's why I believe that the more that we mature, the bigger our vision of Jesus becomes. And the bigger our vision of Jesus becomes, the more that God is glorified through us. The honest truth is that we are all in process. I don't want you to hear me wrong. We are all in process. I have a lot of adolescence left in me. I am stuck in so many places in my life. Paul would even admit, I'm not where I want to be. I haven't perfected this. And this isn't really about even assessing our own maturity because the honest truth is you're either going to think you're further than you are or you're going to sell yourself short and neglect what God has done in your life. We're probably not going to be accurate, be able to be, you know, to accurately assess where we are. That's not the point. The aim is not to obsess how far along you are. The aim is to take serious this goal of maturing and make it our own. To make it our own as individuals, to make it our own as a community, making a commitment to never stop pursuing growth in Christ through the power that God works within us. Amen? Upward and on, upward and on into more and more experience of this vision of Jesus Christ as we grow. Amen? Father, thank you.